This episode is sponsored by Audible, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash serial spoiler. We're also sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code serial spoiler. Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate Senior Editor Gabriel Roth, and joining me from our DC studio is Slate's Words Correspondent, Katie Waldman. Hi, Katie. Hi, Gabe. Are you all ready for the blizzard? Um, yes. I have stocked up on exactly nothing, but I've got Netflix, so I think I'm good to go. Glad to hear. We're back after an unexpected hiatus because, as you've probably noticed, Serial has moved to a bi-weekly schedule, uh, a change that we will discuss later. But in case you're joining us for the first time, this is the podcast where Katie and I discuss season two of Serial week by week, sort of, going deeper into the show's themes, exploring its characters and situations, and looking at the ways in which the podcast reverberates in the world. This week, we are talking about uh, episode five of Serial Season 2, Meanwhile in Tampa. Katie. Yes. Big themes. What were the big themes this week? Oh, my gosh. You're starting with, Uh, like, the heavy guns. Starting with big themes. I would say, yeah, I would say that the big themes are the tangle of competing interests that are complicating the rescue operation for Bo Bergdahl. Basically, the question that we are asking ourselves as the story is unfolding, is it worth it? Is he worth it? Um, And do the circumstances of his capture matter? Should that factor into the decisions that all these people are making as they're spreading a limited number of resources around trying to do a lot of different things in a really um, sort of messy situation? That is my swing at a big theme. What is your <laughs> meet me with another big theme? People versus institutions uh, mm. and the, the, the difficulty of, of making change, making things happen from within a bureaucracy. Obviously, closely connected to the moral questions that you raise. Let's talk about the moral questions you raise, since I think those are the more interesting questions. Well, I just thought it was really fascinating hearing from not their real names, Michelle and Andrea, who work for the DOD and their analysts and their entire mission. Um, Their job there is PR, personnel recovery. And we hear from them that one of the sort of shining uh, edicts of their of their role in their position is that they cannot take the circumstances of capture into account. The point is you do everything you can to get the missing person back and then, you know, snapping into place is the judgment and the punishment and the lecture or whatever. Um, And I found it really, really fascinating to hear that they actually had to sort of sell their case to other people in their organization. When you're standing before your peers and and addressing the meeting and first and foremost you have to get over the misconceptions of circumstances of capture and this rings true to a lot of cases you'll know you'll hear this the the comment oh well he's just a journalist he shouldn't have been there anyways why should we help him or oh they were just hiking why would they be hiking there they could hike in colorado oh uh isn't that the kid that walked off base yeah i can't even begin to tell you the amount of times that we heard well, why should I care? And they had to say, no, he's worth it. He deserves it. Even if you think he's a traitor, even if he walked off the base, we still need to give this project our all. Um, And what struck me as sort of 
something that they took for granted, which is we need to do our job and get him back as if this is the only thing that matters. That's not something that Serial is taking for granted. And in fact, um, the entire second season is premised on the idea that circumstances of capture do matter and that the question of how we judge Bergdahl is actually really important and loaded and is something that we should be examining from a lot of different angles. And then in terms of personal, um, I think I'm still sort of more in the softy camp where I believe that he has suffered enough and the circumstances don't really matter and we should have expended as much energy as we possibly could have uh, to get him back. Although I do admit that it becomes a really thorny question when you think about preserving relationships with Pakistan and all the other operations that are going on in that part of the world. So I am punting, basically. Gabe, what do you think? Are you kidding? If that was a punt, that was like an 85-yard punt. Sorry, that was, yeah, was that good? That was seconds. a sports thing. I'm no good at sports things. Sam's <laughs> nodding at me and giving me the thumbs up, so I know that was a good sports thing. Thanks, Sam. Awesome. Um, I have a slightly different take on how Serial is portraying that question. I don't know that Serial has concluded that um, circumstances of capture matters and has to be taken into account. Um, it seems to me more like the show recognizes that that's something that people care about, that, that the show is not ultimately a sort of moral investigation, that it's telling a story, and that if you're telling a story, then then the motivations of the characters are, are part of the structure of that story, and that's part of what we pay attention to. And so if, if, if you're telling someone a story about somebody who walks off his own base on purpose and then gets captured by the enemy, the first part of that sentence, the walks off his own base part, informs the way that you hear that story, whether or not it should inform the way other people behave in, in trying to get him back. But I mean, what do you think Sarah thinks when she says, for instance, I just want to talk for a second about this very human thing that overlays, again, not just Bo's case, but all these hostage cases. Take Colin Rutherford. He's a young guy, Canadian. He was freed from the Taliban last week after more than five years. He'd been traveling in Afghanistan when he went missing. And the day he was released, the Canadian press covered it, not the details of how and why, just the fact of his return. And the online comments immediately were things like this. Who goes on vacation to Afghanistan, bonehead? Or this, headline should read, idiot rescued, who cares about the details? And while I'm tempted to be all sanctimonious and say, that's awful, how can people be so awful? The truth is, I've thought things like this. I mean, it's great, they're home, but you know, also, it's their own damn fault. I admit it. And I'll wager we've all thought things like this, right? It's not unconflicted which makes us no different than a lot of the people charged with finding, say, Caitlin Coleman or Colin Rutherford or Bo Bergdahl. The only difference is those people are not supposed to think like that. Circumstances of capture are not supposed to come into play. I mean, she seems conflicted. There was a very interesting interview that Sarah Koenig recorded with David Remnick on the New Yorker podcast. I think it's called Politics and More. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, she talks about when she was a, a newspaper reporter and she was covering the court system and she would be sitting in on a trial and reporting on a trial. And she said, I was always really suckered by both sides. 
I'd be covering a trial and I'd be like, well, that sounds reasonable, you know, and then like, the defense <laughs> would get out and be like, what? right, he didn't, that's right. I like, I believed everyone. Like there's shades of truth in here that are a lot subtler than we generally acknowledge in this system. And that was always the part that was interesting to me. And I think that's what we see here, that that her her approach to reporting these stories is, you used the phrase radical empathy, um, is to treat every subject position in the story as something that deserves that kind of empathy. And so if Bo Bergdahl decides to walk off his base, that's something that we should try to understand. And if another soldier has nothing but contempt for Bo Bergdahl walking off his base, then that contempt is something that we should try to understand. And if Andrea and Michelle are are just devoted to recovering hostages and not taking circumstances of capture into account, then let's open ourselves up to that perspective. And then if other people in the system take it very seriously, the the circumstance of capture, then we should pay attention to that as well. It's that kind of shifting perspective that sometimes can make the show um, a little bit dizzying as we switch back and forth between one point of view and another without the show necessarily telling us which one it's going to endorse. That's really well said. And I think that this is where serial season two gets pretty interesting because stipulated institutions and systems can't feel empathy. Only individuals can. And so when you're talking about a story that's really about the dance of many different, the DOD and the NSA and the CIA, it becomes sort of like outside of Serial's wheelhouse almost. Like she needs to find the story in these particular kind of rogue individuals who go against the system, like Kim, who violates, you know, who who doesn't drop the ball when the Department of Defense asks her to nicely. Or, you know, Nathan, who we hear um, starts coloring outside the lines and contacts Bo Bergdahl's parents, even, you know, when that is not at all professional and he could really get in trouble for doing that. Um, so I actually, I guess that is my seg. I want to throw that um, theme of systems versus individuals to you and see like what about that uh, struck you. Thank you for that seg. I'm going to catch that theme from you. Thank you for tossing it over to me. People versus systems. It's a big theme. Um, it, it, the, the sort of preeminent people versus systems story of our era is The Wire, right? It's about how mm-hmm. uh, individuals within systems have their own um, agendas and their own incentives, and then the systems take those, use them, pervert them, corrupt them, sometimes in small ways allow them to be achieved. And I I, I recognized that kind of story form in this episode of Serial, that, um, you know, if if you look at things from the perspective of Andrea and Michelle, then the really important thing is that there's an American soldier being held by the Taliban, and, and we've got to get him back, and that's what they're thinking about every day. Whereas if you are, you know, a general in the U.S. Army, then that is not what you're thinking about every day. And and the only way to to get that person's attention is to leave a bottle of whiskey on his desk (laughs) and and set up your five-minute meeting so that you can put your idea in his head. Um, It's interesting to me to see, you know, the U.S. military and and the CIA and the Department of Defense behaving very much like the civilian institutions uh, that I'm familiar with. You know, sometimes if you work at, let's say, an online magazine and and you want to make something happen, then you have to figure out a way to get the attention of the person whose authorization you need to do that. And and you need to line up all of these relationships properly. And it's... uh, 
you know, it, it, it's a thing that everybody who, who works in any kind of bureaucracy is very familiar with. But in the case of cereal, it also brings up something that is a little uncomfortable and that the show almost says explicitly this week, which is that the story of Bo Bergdahl connects to lots of things that are very important, but is not itself hugely important. Uh, hmm. it, it connects to the president and it connects to the Taliban and it connects to the United States relationship with Pakistan. And, and all of that stuff is, is like globally important. And then there's one man in trouble, uh, which is important to him and important to the people who care about him. And in some abstract way, it's important because he's an American soldier. And in an abstract way, we care about even an individual U.S. soldier in captivity. Um, but it, it, it's not world historically important in the same way that when an individual soldier dies, it's tragic, but it doesn't make the news. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. something that... Um, the system is set up to care about a great deal. The truth is, there's a limit. There have to be limits on how much we risk, how much we give up to get one person back. And for a long time, Bo loomed small. To put it coarsely, he wasn't worth it. He was tucked in among so many other crises. A small fire smoldering among all these giant fires that also need to be put out. The time to deal with him is when he becomes something else, something useful a way to put out a bigger fire. Do you feel like Bergdahl's case is important or do you feel like it's unimportant and that doesn't matter for the story that's being told? Or do you feel like it's unimportant and it does matter for the story that's being told? I think it's very complicated because it matters for the story. Like, it's an interesting and it, it's a story that sheds light on a lot of other things. As you say, that you sort of pull one thread in the Bo Bergdahl story and then all of a sudden you're talking about international relationships like between Pakistan and Afghanistan and the United States. So, so it's really, it's all interconnected. Um, if it weren't, you're right. I don't think that this would be, I mean, it would have humanitarian interest and, um, to the extent that we're always sort of um, intrigued and captivated by, you know, other human beings that we connect with or, or project ourselves onto. Um, it would be, you know, like a ripping listen, I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't really know how to separate the importance of the context from the importance of just his narrative. Um, and I would also say that with serial they're always sort of casting a vote on the side of the individual. And maybe this has something to do with the pro-empathy uh, theory. Like, it struck me that there were so many instances in this episode of all the cogs doing their jobs perfectly. Um, and it doesn't work. Like, it's insufficient. So, you know, uh, Koenig would emphasize, look, it's, you know, everyone was trying really hard. It's just that. If this attitude is lurking all the way to the top, then what ideas are not getting through? What's not even getting proposed because someone low down fears saying something unpopular? This episode seems to be arguing that you need to have that sort of human, idiosyncratic, individual touch, um, sort of like, you know, the beef jerky on the table um, in order to actually get things done. 
Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash serial spoiler and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash serial spoiler. That's audible.com slash serial spoiler and get started today. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If you're interested in more American military intrigue, you might consider The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top-secret military research agency, by Annie Jacobson, the true story of the Defense Department's most secret, most powerful, and most controversial military science R&D agency. Start your free trial today by going to audible.com slash serial spoiler. So let's talk about some of the other individuals in the story. Um, there was Kim, who, who was a, a friend of Bo's family and, and uh, who, who makes all these efforts to rescue him. Uh, and then there was Nathan, the, the former intelligence individual. What do you think about them? How did their stories play out? Well, Kim got some good laugh lines. She fits into a category of like scrappy, wily women um, this episode. So you had her embarking on her own sort of shadow rescue operation with doing some sort of secret thing that we never figure out what it is to get in touch with a Taliban operative. And then you've got uh, Andrea and Michelle, who are sweet-talking various executives in order to get audiences with generals, and um, Sarah herself, who, you know, has her kind of warm, wily reporting persona. Uh, I Yeah, I guess I did get the sense that there's sort of a maleness about some of these institutions and sort of then there's the the woman who's challenging it. It, it doesn't hold in all cases because Nathan and stuff. But did you did yeah, you that, feel that way? That's a very good point that 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 obviously the military is a predominantly male institution and, and that these are women who are trying to work both inside and outside of, of ordinary protocols to to perform this rescue mission there's a um it's the gender breakdown is interesting and there's something archetypal about uh about that setup um there's this one big sort of gap in the narrative which is this woman kim in ordinary woman in portland oregon who somehow gets in touch with somebody in the taliban who knows where bo bergdahl is and gets him to call her cell phone um and he's speaking in pashto it's very obviously not I was not able to understand it, except for he said, so blah, blah, Bergdahl, Bergdahl. So that's when I went, oh, crap. You know, this is what is going on. Um, and my roommate was there. I'm like, this person, you know, I'm making faces at him as I'm listening to Passion. Like, <laughs> so I'm like, like what, what do I do? The, what the heck, you know? Um, so I told him, you know, I said, email, email, you know, and he's going, email, email. Okay. So he hangs up, I hang up, I go online, I try to find ways of pronouncing, like, phonetically, letters right. from my email. Like, how will I say K-I-M, blah, blah, blah. Um, where he'll get that Where that he'll I understand the K is a K and the I is an I and M is an M, P is Right. But he called back, like, 10 minutes later, and I'm trying to give him my email address with an accent. We go over it, like, three or four times. And it... It worked. 
I had no... We go into such tremendous oh, detail about yeah. that part, but there's this big gap where, like, well, how did she get in touch with this guy in the first place? Um, and and unfortunately, the show can't tell us. And and you and I both know when you're reporting something and, and sometimes there's a piece of the story that you're just not allowed to print and you, you do everything you can do to, to try to get permission to use it, but you just can't use it and you have to write around it and, and how sort of heartbreaking it is. But it's hard to think of a more heartbreaking example than this one. Yeah. I mean, what do you yeah, think it although, was? What would you do if you were trying to get in touch with somebody from the Taliban who might know where one American prisoner was? I I would have to talk to my Taliban contacts and get back to you. Um, but, yeah, no, I think there's, I mean, there's a little bit of glamour about it, like a kind of mystique, like, oh, this part is so top secret and so spy movie that, like, we can't tell you listeners. Um, but, yeah, I can imagine sort of a big sad sigh was heaved in the serial offices um, at that point. And what about Nathan? Uh, I think that that's an alias, right, for a, a former intelligence official who, who throughout the interviews, we hear his voice and he just seems so um, nervous and anxious about being on tape describing this slightly unorthodox stuff that he was involved in. There was a manipulation game going on, and that's what makes this very difficult to speak about. Were you telling them, here's what you need to ask? Yeah. <laughs> Your face looks worried when you say that. Yeah, it's. I, I am quite worried. You are? Why? Because yeah. what could happen? <laughs> well, it's just messy. It's just messy. Always an interesting character is the guy who's the sort of savvy insider going rogue, right? He he mm -hmm. knows he knows that Bo Bergdahl's parents is an asset. They're like, they have a particular right. kind of credibility. They can get attention in a way that an or, uh, any other person can't get. And it's not enough to actually, like, make any big changes. It's not enough to really steer the ship in a different direction. But it, it's enough to apply a little bit of pressure at a couple of points to the point where hopefully you can get people mentioning it in the presence of the president to the point where mm -hmm. hopefully he's going to pay attention to it. Um, an interesting guy, the the bureaucratic operator who, who goes outside the system in that way. Um, and it's funny to you think of that guy as a kind of hyper-competent operator type. And it's funny to hear that guy sounding very sheepish on a podcast. Um, mm -hmm. Very nervous. Yeah, very, very, very nervous and like, a, uh, like an ordinary guy who, okay, he's been working in the system and he knows how it works, but he's not some kind of, uh, you know, master player. He's, he's just a guy. Um, I thought that's a good character. Yeah, although there was another big gaping hole in the plot, which was why was he so frustrated? Nathan did not work directly on Bo's case, not officially, but he was very close to it, watching from the sidelines, watching all these people not be able to accomplish much of anything. There were times along the way where there were various plans, um, options to uh, get him freed, but nobody could make that decision, or at least if they could, they didn't want to. Again, we're not talking about why Nathan got so personally frustrated, but know that he did. I would have loved to hear what uh, what hurdles stood in his way. Yeah, absolutely. This is, I mean, in a way, if you decide you're going to do like a long-form narrative reporting project on this kind of material, on stuff that involves clandestine operations, then you you probably know going in that there's going to be places where there there will have to be holes in your story. Uh, and and that's probably the bargain you make. But um, it probably doesn't feel great when you have two big ones in one episode. 
Gabe, so there's an elephant in the room, and that is that our beloved podcast is coming to us bi-weekly as opposed to weekly. Um, and this was only barely alluded to at the beginning of episode five. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about the new schedule. I don't have a lot of thoughts because we don't have any inside information. I, I am only speculating. Um, it It's probably not something that they were excited to do. It probably doesn't feel great to the producers of the show to have to change their schedule like that. Um, they are probably hearing from annoyed fans on Twitter about it. They are probably doing it because they weren't able to do the kind of work that they were hoping to do on a weekly schedule. I hope it, it helps them. I hope it lets them make the kind of show that they are trying to make. Um, and I admire their interest in in making their work as good as it can be. Um, I also wish that I were hearing this show every week. What can you do? Yeah. Um, I do think that it's nice that they're showing a willingness to experiment with their form. Like, they're not locked in, into, oh, we are serial, so it is once every week. Um, there's kind of a flexibility there Uh that is exciting from the standpoint of, well, what else will they sort of tweak and experiment with? <laughs> yes, maybe they'll go annual. Um, <laughs> I do think they probably regret having adopted the slogan, one story told week by week. Uh, this episode, um, Sarah Koenig began with... From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's serial. One story told week by week, sort of. I wonder what she's going to do in the next episode, because you can only you can only use that joke one time. Yeah, although I do think that the show kind of relishes those, those moments of humor, especially the kind of self-deprecating ones. Um, or maybe I just relish it because otherwise it seems a little too confident. Okay, before we go on, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Harry's. Harry's sent me a shaving set. It came with a copper-plated razor handle, a couple of five-blade razor cartridges, uh, great-smelling shaving cream, and you can tell with this razor that it's really well built. The weight is good in your hand. It's been well made by somebody who cared about making a quality razor. I've been using mass-produced razors my entire life because I'm not the kind of person who owns a fancy, expensive razor. Harry's razors are affordable, but they're a lot better than the ones you're going to get at the, your local drugstore. Uh, you should get one for yourself if you're a shaver. If you're not a shaver, you should get one as a gift for the shaver in your life. Check out harrys.com. Get a few gifts. Treat yourself. Go there right now. As a special offer for for listeners of this podcast, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with code SERIALSPOILER. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code SERIALSPOILER. Now we'd like to take a few minutes to discuss some feedback from listeners. If you'd like to contact us, you can always send us your thoughts and questions about Serial or our show via email to SERIALSPOILERSPECIAL at gmail.com. Or you can record a voice memo on your phone and send it to that address. First up this week, a message from Cecilia. Uh, who responded to our recent critique that season two of Serial lacked a compelling mystery. Cecilia writes, Not all stories, serial narratives, need to be mysteries. Koenig laid out the point quite clearly in the first episode with the discussion of the children's book. The point is not to solve a mystery. The point is to unpack how the different perspectives and widening contexts allow us to understand better and differently a single and particular complicated story. We received similar thoughts from Jeremy, who offered a concise proposal for the central question of season two. He writes... I think that all of this is to provide a wide context for how to view Bergdahl, thank him, punish him, pity him, hate him, and or lionize him. How to judge Bergdahl is a worthy topic, in my opinion, and it doesn't depend on whether or not the story involves a beautiful dead girl. 
Last episode, we discussed whether Sarah Koenig's hand-holding the audience with regard to the plot of the show was patronizing or revealed a betrayal of the values that made people flock to Serial in the first place. But listener Chris points out that she might be doing that simply because Serial is telling a complex story in audio form, so there aren't the same visual cues we'd have at our disposal if we were watching a documentary. Next, an email from Shana, who has an interesting perspective on the question of empathy for Bergdahl. Shana writes... My primary reason for not enjoying season two as much comes down to aesthetics. The tapes of Bergdahl's voice sound kind of faded and distant, and I don't enjoy hearing him speak. Perhaps it's more simple. I find him, in the way he is presented, to be an unsympathetic character. The feeling of separation from the main character links to the fact that all of the recordings of him that they use have already been completed. He's not speaking directly with our host, Sarah Koenig, to whom we all feel so close. And we as viewers feel a bit remote from the unfolding of the story. It's more like a collage than a narrative. It's not intimate, as we've come to expect from the podcast medium across the board. Thanks to everyone who contacted us. Please keep your responses coming to SerialSpoilerSpecial at gmail.com. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks following the release of Episode 6 of Serial's second season. The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is produced by Sam Dingman. We are a production of Slate's Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us in iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at itunes.com panoply. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time (gasps) no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details